0: Na o hakawato ato sum some <inaudible> namo hakawato ato summa sam buddha <inaudible> sap namo samma ato sum some <inaudible> buddha sap Putang kamangshang masami we continuing with this first chapter, uh, laying the ground, called Before We Begin. And the next section is called Two Levels of Scale. The teaching on dependent origination can be described as being on the basis of a momentary experience, or it can be presented as being on the basis of three lifetimes. Those three being the immediate past, the present and the immediate future. Both of these formats are found in the Pali Canon, the original teachings of the Buddha, such as at, at uh, Diga Nikaya uh, Sutta number no. 15, the Mahanidana Sutta, and uh, Majima Nikaya Middle Length Discourses Sutta No. 140, the Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta, the exposition on the elements. And in the commentarial literature, books such as the Samoha Vinodani, a commentary to the Abhidhamma, And in the Visuddhimagga, The Path of Purification, a compendium written by Acharya Buddhagosa that arose in the centuries after the Buddha's time. So I I thought I'd um, give some examples. I'll read those examples from the suttas in a minute. The momentary interpretation describes the entirety of the 12 linked factors happening in rapid succession, effectively showing how the mind is born, quote-unquote, Into experiences moment by moment. It happens as fast, as Ajahn Chah would put it, as falling out of a tree. He further pointed out that trying to track every nuance, every subtle quality of the process, would be like trying to count the branches that you are falling past during your accelerating descent. It's too quick to catch every detail, but you know without a doubt that thud, when you hit the ground, it hurts. This momentary quote-unquote interpretation is espoused as a key teaching not just by masters of the Thai forest tradition like Ajahn Chah but also, for example, by Western scholars such as Dr. Paul Dalka who was one of the uh, early European writers and teachers of of, um, Buddhism in in Germany, based in Germany. The three lifetimes interpretation breaks the twelve links into three groups. Previous life, Ignorance conditions formations, formations condition consciousness, consciousness, this consciousness being seen as a relinking consciousness, quote unquote, from one life to the next. Present life, consciousness conditions mentality, materiality, mind and body of the new life. Mentality, materiality conditions the six sense spheres. The six sense spheres condition contact, sense contact. Contact conditions feeling, feeling conditions craving, craving conditions clinging, clinging conditions becoming. This becoming, quote-unquote, being seen as the gestation, the, the beginning of another birth as a, as a living being. The next life, uh, becoming conditions birth, birth conditions old age and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So that, you um, know, this is a, a very um, sort of, Brief way of describing it, but those are the two main, most most common formats. And so, first of all, uh, from the Diganikaya, this is the the great discourse on causation. This is the one where uh, I mentioned yesterday, where Venerable Ananda says, "It's wonderful, Lord! It's marvellous how profound this dependent origination is. How profound it appears, and yet it appears to me as clear as clear." Do not say that, Ananda. Do not say that. It's so the same Sutta. So in this, and again this is the same one where the, the, um, uh, the Buddha points out uh, mind and body conditions, uh, consciousness conditions mind and body uh, and if you're asked has consciousness a condition for its existence you should answer yes. Uh, if asked what conditions consciousness you should answer mind and body conditions consciousness. Thus Ananda, mind and body conditions consciousness and consciousness conditions mind and body. So they, they turn back uh, upon themselves. So in, in terms of this um, so describing a uh, birth as a living being, and sort of from one life into the next, um, later on in the Sutta he says, I have said, consciousness conditions mind and body. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would mind and body develop there? No, Lord. Or if consciousness having entered the mother's womb were to be deflected, would mind and body come to birth in this life? No, Lord. And if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would mind and body grow, develop, and mature? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely consciousness, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of mind and body. So it's very clear he's using the language of physical birth and a living being in the human realm. Coming uh, into physical physical birth, so it's very uh, to me very very distinct and obvious. That's what he's talking about there. And the other example I gave, which is from the wonderful discourse called the Gatu Vibhanga Sutta, the exposition of the elements. And for those of you who are uh, who've uh, been interested, again, uh, not to blow my own trumpet, but the book Pil- the Pilgrim Karmanita, that I did a a. a um, uh, more uh, sort of up-to-date edition of it's based around the the scenario of this sutta where the Buddha goes to stay in a potter's in a shed at a potter's uh, house a pottery, and he shares uh, a room with a wanderer, and the wanderer is, uh, thinks of himself as a disciple of the Buddha, but he doesn't realise that the monk he's sharing the room with is the Buddha. So that uh, that encounter, the chance encounter between. Um, someone who's on his way to meet the Buddha and thought of himself as the Buddha's disciple ends up sharing a room with the Buddha and not realizing who he's sharing a room with. So uh, the pilgrim Karmanita written originally by the Danish author Karl Gellerup, uh, comes from this very uh, this very discourse. That's how it how it begins. Anyway, when um, the the wanderer who is called Pukusati in this uh, in the original sutta, um, he's. Asked this wanderer, this other yogi he's sharing the room with, says, so you know, what kind of practice do you do? You know, what, do you, what sort of teaching do you follow? And then the Buddha gives this incredibly intricate and uh, profound discourse. And about halfway through this exposition, uh, the Venerable Pukasati thought, indeed, the teacher has come to me, the sublime one has come to me, the fully enlightened one has come to me. So he realizes, I think I know who I'm sharing this room with. And he sort of gets up and hits the floor and says, please excuse me, I'm sorry, I was so familiar, I called you friend. and um, I, I, Like a fool, confused and blundering, I presumed to address the Blessed One as friend. <laughs> please forgive me. So then the Buddha does forgive him, of course. But the, the, the particular passage I thought to read out here, which is about um, rebirth, but very much uh, or to me uh, and uh, other people who have um, studied this, uh, It seems very, very clear. It's a a, um, psychological birth. Being born into uh, conditions of like or dislike, comfort and discomfort, and so on, is uh, is really what is meant. So, one should not neglect wisdom, should preserve truth, should cultivate relinquishment, and should train for peace. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands on these foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. So it was said, and with, what, with, and with reference to what was this said. So, uh, in, in the Buddhist psychology, conceiving and conceit doesn't just mean being having an inflated ego being conceited as we use the word in English, but it's any kind of, uh, of forming of the I am attitude, the I, I am feeling. So, uh, the Pali is Manyati, to, to conceive, and so this is what this is talking about. Um, and uh, so the Buddha goes on to explain. Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless is a conceiving. I shall be percipient is a conceiving. I shall not be percipient. I shall be non-percipient is a conceiving. I shall be neither percipient nor non-percipient is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumor. Conceiving is a dart, like a poisoned arrow. By overcoming all conceivings, Bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And a sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. He is not shaken and is not agitated. For there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. Not being born, how could he age? Not aging, how could he die? Not dying, how could he be shaken? Not being shaken, why should he be agitated? So to me um, and to many others, then that clearly points to a psychological birth and also psychological death. Yeah, you know, when he says that uh, it does not age, does not die. Um, that's not about not physically you know, the body you know living forever <laughs> not at all it's it's, a, it's to do with a, a psychological death um, and so that that um, uh, the, the languaging there it's not it's not in the same kind of um, format of uh, say uh, con- uh, mind and body con- conditioning uh, the six senses six senses conditioning contact and feeling and so on but Still, the the usage of the term, the, uh, birth, the terms of, of being born and dying and aging, they are exactly the same as we have in the dependent origination teachings. And if you're interested in the the term, the sage at peace, uh, the um, Muni Santo, Muni Santo, is the uh, uh, the term for Muni is a sage and Santo is peace we used to have a cat here called Muni I think I'm the only one who remembers Muni a little black cat that uh, very early on in um, in the, the life at Amravati again as a bit of an aside but um, Muni was a little black cat I think um, she had moved up here from uh, from Chithurst with the community and and uh, Amravati used to have a heating system with 4-inch wide cast iron pipes that went all the way around the site. And poor little Mooney got stuck into one of those 4-inch heating pipes. The heating system was, was um, disabled, so there was no hot water going through it. But the cat got stuck in, in the pipe. And there was a great deal of effort trying to get Moony out of the pipe. And eventually the only way it could be done was to cut the pipe with an angle grinder. So after that, and this is why Mooney got the name Mooney, was because Mooney didn't utter a sound after that. <laughs> Became a silent cat. <laughs> I think probably quite shocked and traumatized, but was alive. And uh, so Mooney was one of the Sangha uh, members of the, the, the broader community here for for a long time, but was a, but was completely mute. It was a very very quiet cat. So uh, any questions, uh, thoughts? On any of that, there's a few different elements in there. Again, these, these readings are for you, they're not for me, so please, if there's anything that uh, needs clarification or you have questions, uh, don't be shy. Yes? I have one,
1: Arjun, um, not directly pertaining to this, but sort of a larger question. Um, in terms of Amiroma, um, you were speaking about it yesterday, how. Some some factors are um, co-constituted, and so does that mean that the, that the cycle can be
0: interrupted at any point? Uh, I would say, and that's one of the themes of this book: is there's very various different points that it can, the 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 cycle can be interrupted or escaped from. Um, uh, it's yes, uh, nascent was the word I used. So. Um, yeah so some of them are like that or like the, the Buddha's description about uh, nama Rupa conditions consciousness consciousness conditions nama Rupa that they, they lean upon each other they they are um, uh, codependent they, they are co co nascent they, they they work together they they are a, a, a kind of a, a unit so some areas of the cycle uh, make easier exit points than others and so uh, and uh, it's, uh, what I put in this book—it's not the only way of, of um, escaping from the cycle, or the, the um, sort of the, the sort of categorically uh, correct interpretation—but you know, any one of the areas uh, or, or those links can be focused on, and through insight into the, that, how that's working, um, then that can be a, a place where the, the cycle is, is escaped from or is broken. And it can be like if there's two if there's two parts that are, are sort of leaning on each other, like nama rupa and vijnana, like the, the discriminative consciousness, or consciousness and and mentality materiality. Um, and there's a uh, another sutta in the connected discourses where it talks about they lean on each other like two bundles of reeds. But if you take one away, then the other one falls down. So it can be say if there's uh, the, uh, if in the, the meditation or insight arises about the uh, nature of mind, uh, nama rupa, materiality, mentality, and if that's sort of seen through and let go of, then vinyana will collapse. Or if then vinyana is seen through and understood and and let go of, then the nama rupa collapses. Yeah, so that uh, again, not to make it sound so sort of too complicated or intricate, but often with, the, with these kind of teachings. Different uh, aspects of it are meaningful to different people. So, like looking at the the, the twelve links of the classical formation, it might be that someone uh, really focuses on bhava, on becoming. Like, yeah, I know what that is. That's and the attention easily goes there. And uh, for someone else, it's like, well, I don't. That that bit's not really important. But your yeah, feeling, yeah, I can get feeling conditioning craving. Yeah, that's that's totally alive and real. So according to our own particular disposition, our, our understanding, our background, um, you know, then different areas will be, be meaningful or, or impactful for different people. And I think I say it, if I remember correctly, at the end of this chapter, I, I encourage that sense of getting a feeling for the different parts of the cycle, getting to understand the, the, what the words refer to as a felt sense, as a, your own individual experience. Um, and then experimenting you know, working with, with uh, the way that you language it for yourself the way that you approach uh, the, the different links because the point is for the, the heart to be liberated from those cycles that's, that's the point of it so l- working with the language and working with uh, how one element relates to another um, there's going to be parts that make sense and others that don't like uh, 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 when I first I would never even heard of the teaching when I was living in Thailand first couple of years I was a novice and as a monk and it was only there was very few books in English at Wat Nanachat and it wasn't a subject that came up in dhamma talks that I, I was familiar with or could understand in English <laughs> so it wasn't really until I got to England and then uh, there was uh, some sutta books at Chidhurst, and I started to to look at some of these essential teachings and uh Dependent origination, I'd say like 95% of it was totally mysterious. Didn't even have the the conceit of an under. It's like, what the heck is that talking about? Volitional form, what's a volitional formation? That's a weird expression. Even if English is your first language, a volitional formation. (laughs) Would you know one if it met you on the street? You know, it's like, what is that? What's that talking about? And, and, uh, but then okay feeling conditions craving okay right yes i i know you <laughs> and so then i i would say it took a long time just to to uh even to remember memorize what the, the links were but it wasn't really until the the late 80s when uh, lumpur sameda was giving the teachings on this all through the whole winter retreat for three or four years in a row by the end of that time i felt okay i, I can have a sense of how the different elements, uh, what what the terminology means and how some of them relate to each other, but even then there were still areas it's like, I don't know how that works, or what that's really talking about. But with that, the last thing I would say on that is that I feel in in Dhamma practice it's really important to let things be mysterious. Particularly if you've got an active brain, that likes to figure everything out. I've got. A, I, I like to make lists, of draw diagrams with little boxes and arrows between them. That's a, I do a lot of that. So I like to figure things out and have uh, and explain. But uh, over the years, I found it's really uh, much more helpful when things are mysterious, and no matter how many boxes you draw, arrows between them, it's like, you know, it's, it's not clear. Just to leave things to, as mysterious and say, well. So, the, the teachings talk about that being connected with that or that relating to that, but I don't know how that works, and I can't even see how that's operating within me. Okay, let's put that on the mystery shelf and just—I'm interested, but it's just not—it's too foggy. It's—it's—it's not—it's not enough light. I can't see. It's too blurry. So I'm interested, and then I won't get rid, you know, dismiss it. But right now, it's not knowable, and, and that—to—to—to to, to know that you don't know—is a and just to, to let things be mysterious is an important part of the practice. And then often what what happens, sometimes you're know, listening to a Dhamma talk, or sometimes you're just washing a teacup. <laughs> oh, I think I know what that's about. And that, so it can take mo- you know, weeks or months or years for things to percolate like that. Yes.
1: Well, that means that it be. We <laughs> understand dependent
0: origination. So, if you really understand it, like uh, the, the Buddha said to uh, to Ananda, you know, don't don't take it lightly. But um, and as I was quoting yesterday, if you one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So that there's if there's a real genuine understanding of it at a level of, a level of insight, then. Uh, I would say that's that's equivalent to enlightenment but it's it's not just a conceptual understanding the the conceptual leads into the the capacity for direct realization but the uh, the the full appreciation of how it works that the laws of conditionality and how this experience uh, of uh, of a being in the world how this is formed that that, is, that takes a very, very profound level of insight, I would say.
1: Maybe you can understand a part of it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I need then attention, mm-hmm. thought, <laughs> the <laughs> like, attention, the feeling, mm-hmm. then uh, um, clinging, mm-hmm. no, and then you cut. Mm-hmm. And it's one, maybe one way of understanding
0: Yes, yeah, and uh, what I, I found when uh, Lumpur Mato was was teaching here all those years ago, what he would do, he would take one little section like Avijja Paccaya Sankara, ignorance, conditions, formations, and he would just talk about that every Dhamma talk for like two or three weeks would just be on that one area, and uh, he would be giving a couple of Dhamma talks a day, a morning reflection, an evening Dhamma talk, and And then encouraging us, in the meditation, to be picking up that same theme and exploring it. And so that slowly but surely you get to know what the words are referring to in terms of your own experience. How, okay, how does... So when we talk about ignorance, what is that? Avijja, not not (laughs) vijja, what does that mean? And then that conditions formations, how does that work? And so then taking one little chunk and then working on it for days and days and days, and then he'd move on to another area, like Tanana Upadana Bawa, and uh, again explore that for you know, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, three or four weeks. <laughs> and so then uh, I found that very, very helpful. So you're just taking one little area, and and then using it for reflection in the formal practice, or when you're out and about, so, uh, you know, cleaning your teeth, or washing a teacup, or or um, you know, walking from one place to another, just to that is a theme the mind is picking up and exploring. And so slowly you get familiar with the the different pieces. Do you know what a jigsaw puzzle is? A a puzzle where you put the pieces together and you get bits of a picture. There's lots of blank areas and lots of pieces that you don't know where they go. So it's a bit like that. Okay, so to continue. In his book, Dependent Origination, the Buddhist law of conditionality in appendix 1 Venerable uh, P.A. Payuto uh, Tansomdet Payuto who is an extremely thorough scholar describes how he went through the whole Pali canon and found that approximately one third of the teachings on dependent origination referred to the three lifetimes quote unquote interpretation while two thirds 66% described the momentary representation. So that's the suttas and the, the, the Abhidhamma, the Pali Canon, the original scriptures. He also analyzed the commentaries, which is even more material than the, the, the Pali Canon. He's an extremely thorough scholar. So he analyzed the commentaries and found that it was the opposite. Two-thirds, 66% of the references in the commentaries, described the three-lifetimes interpretation, and one-third, 33%, referred to the momentary interpretation. So, over the centuries, the commentaries weren't written in the Buddha's time, they were in the, in the centuries uh, after the Buddha. So, Acharya Buddha was about uh, a thousand years after the Buddha, so it was quite a long time after. Um, so, in the, the years after, uh, the centuries after the Buddha's time, during the evolution of the commentaries, there was a drift towards the three lifetimes interpretation as the dominant meaning. Throughout the 20th century, Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the most significant voices of the southern school of Buddhism, uh, Theravada world, uh, made it a personal mission to point people to the suttas rather than to the commentaries. He felt that they were uh, far more reliable and liberating to take as a basis of the Buddha's teaching, and thus the wisest source of guidance. The majority of the suttas show the teaching on dependent origination to be something vitally relevant to our current lives, rather than a road map to events in regions well beyond our reach. To wit, a life that's gone by, or a life that is yet to come. In his teaching, Ajin Buddha Dassel would strongly emphasize that the idea of past lives and future lives is not helpful, even to the point of being wrong, because it could lead to superstition. He was trying to get the Buddhism of Thailand Back onto the middle way, capital M, capital W, and away from the unconscious creation of self-view and superstition, a drift that is very common in the aging process of religions. So, in, not just in Thailand, but in many many Buddhist countries, um, often reference is made to the commentaries because they're usually written in more um, sort of fluid, readable language. Uh, the, the the scriptures are, are like the Pali is very very repetitive. And not very poetic. Uh, the commentary is much more e- uh, easy to read, and um, uh, and so that uh, in many many Buddhist countries, there's far more reference to commentary or later literature than there is to the original suttas And so Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, living in Thailand, he was in, in southern Thailand in Chaya, uh, down on the southern peninsula of Thailand. So he uh, he and he was a very fearless character, extremely. Courageous. When I met him, it was like meeting a mountain. He's this extraordinarily uh, still and sort of immovable presence he had. Uh, anyway, he um, he made a, 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 a mission campaign from when he started teaching in the nineteen thirties or even even the twenties. Yeah, even as a novice, he would be. He was invited to give dhamma talks. He was so gifted and knowledgeable. Uh, even as a sixteen-year-old novice, he was giving. On an observance day, he'd be he invited to give two or three Dhamma talks in local monasteries. So he was quite a, a bright light um, from early on. But anyway, he uh, so he he felt this is something really lacking. People don't refer to the suttas, they're not knowledgeable about the suttas. But yet, there's this extraordinary treasure house of teaching. And he saw there was a lot of superstition. Like people being afraid of ghosts or looking for lucky charms, trying to predict the future, uh, making merit so they get reborn in heaven. Or get reborn in the time of making marriage of a particular kind, so you get reborn in the time of the Maitreya Buddha, the next Buddha, so it'd be really easy to get enlightened if you're born in the time of the next Buddha. So he, uh, he understood where those, sort of, those aspirations or those attitudes came from, but he thought, well, this is really missing a lot of the point of the Buddha's teaching, and we've got this wonderful uh, treasure of the Buddha Dhamma, and we're not using it. So he was a very powerful force. Um, in, in Thai society to encourage that and also he was so knowledgeable and such a good speaker he could explain uh, why uh, he made that emphasis and along the way there was a de-emphasizing of past lives and future lives um, and I uh, will speak about in a minute so uh, he um, uh, uh, he was such even though he was from the, the, the south of Thailand um, and he was a forest monk but he wasn't in the same kind of lineage as, as Ajahn Chah with, uh, as a disciple of Ajahn Man and the northeast Thai Ajans. In Ajahn Chah's Kuti at the main monastery Wapapong, he had one picture on the wall behind his seat, he'd, he'd receive people sitting on a, a little bench under his Kuti, the Kuti's up on stilts and he would receive people in this open area under his Kuti, there was one picture on the wall, and it was right above his head and that was a picture of Ajahn Buddha Dasa. So he didn't have a picture of, uh, of uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, he had a picture of Ajahn Buddhadasa above his head. So if you went to see Ajahn Chah, you saw Ajahn Buddhadasa above his head. Because he felt that was a very, very skillful and helpful reorientation of people's priorities. And there was a lot of literature. Ajahn Buddhadasa was very prolific in his writings and also radio broadcasts. And He was quite uh, up to the minute in terms of media. So, if you go and visit the uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa Museum and Archive in Bangkok, there's a whole ar- array of, of ancient tape recorders and wire recorders and, and things he was using to record his teachings and then um, disseminate them um, to people and put them out over the radio and such like. In 1988, I had a chance to meet Ajahn Buddhadasa. Uh, so that was after my tenth reigns as a monk. In those days, we didn't travel very much. So I'd left Thailand in 1979, and had been living in England ever since. And then after my 10th Vasa, 10th reigns, and I had a chance to go back, and uh, Lumpur Sumedho invited me to go back and spend a bit of time in Thailand. So I, uh, I, on that trip, um, I went to go and visit Ajahn uh, his um, fellow um, fellow monk, and um, uh, one who helped him to establish Suomok, uh, Lumpur Paninanda, have been coming here a lot uh, to England and have been helping our community and Lumpur Paninanda encouraged me to go and visit Ajahn Buddhadasa. I actually paid uh, he organized my ticket to get down to the south to meet Ajahn Buddhadasa. So a western monk who was traveling with me was very concerned about Ajahn Buddhadasa's rigorous emphasis on the momentary interpretation and dismissal of the three lives uh, one because that western monk had strong perceptions about past lives and future lives. These seemed extremely real and common sense to him as well as being mentioned very regularly in the canonical teachings. It was upsetting and confusing to him that Ajahn Buddhadasa, in his writings and his talks, seemed to be saying that the idea of past lives and future lives was wrong or bad. So so Ajahn Buddhadasa's um, book on on dependent origination is called uh, Under the Bodhi Tree. I'm pretty sure we've got copies in in the library here. Under the Bodhi Tree. Um, uh, when this monk asked him about this very point I was quite touched by Ajahn Buddha Dasa's response he could discern the sincerity of, of this inquirer uh, this, the monk who was with me is literally kind of <laughs> shaking as he asked the question because he thought I don't want to confront the great master but he was really concerned It's because like, that was such a, a real part of his life it's like well this great master is saying this is uh, wrong or out of place, or this isn't, this, this is not uh, meaningful. And it, it just, he couldn't fit that together. So he was quite anxious in putting the question. So Anjan to his great credit, noticed this and, and spoke to that, the sincerity that this monk had. He could discern the sincerity of the, this inquirer, and he was thus very sensitive and respectful towards him. He said, Yes, of course, those references are in the suttas and I don't deny that they are valid. But, in Thailand, blind belief and superstition, self-view around past and future lives, is so strong that I have felt it my duty to emphasize things in the way that I have, because the current is so powerful in the other direction. That's me remembering roughly what he said. That's not a direct quote I didn't have a recorder with me. <laughs> That's roughly what he said. So uh Any questions on that? That said, I would stress that there is no one single correct way to understand dependent origination and to apply its principles. It is a map of a natural organic process which can be seen to apply on many different levels. At the subatomic scale, which I refer to a little bit in a a talk I included at the the back of this book, from 1988, I think. Um, so it can apply at a subatomic scale, at the level of momentary human experience, over a span of several lifetimes, and even on a population wide scale, if one considers the effects of ignorance in societies, producing greater greed, hatred, delusion, and thereby suffering. The process of dependent origination obeys the laws of scale invariance. So I understand that's a bit of an odd term. So scale invariance, uh, it was Ajahn Tunisaro who uses this in in talking about this principle very helpfully. So scale invariance, to explain that term, that is to say, just as uh, the dendrite of a a nerve ending, so the the way a a nerve ending splits up into little branches and smaller branches, and the word dendrite, dendron is the Greek word for a tree, so... The word dendrite describing a nerve ending, is literally comes from the word for tree. So the dendrite of a nerve ending, a tree, and a river delta, so like when a river spreads out and, and merges with the sea, they all have the, exactly the same profile, the same shape. But One is, is miles across, one is the size of a tree, and one is a tiny microscopic nerve ending. But they, you can put them in, all side by side, and they all have a roughly similar shape. So having the same shape at different scales, that's called scale invariance. Does that make sense? Do say no if it doesn't. Don't be shy. Is that clear enough? I think it's a helpful principle to have in mind, even though it's a bit of a, a weird sort of mathematical term. Um, I, uh, I feel it's, it's, it's good to get a sense of that because dependent origination its functioning in a finger snap or over a day or over a lifetime or over a uh, Uh, centuries in terms of of evolution and so forth so that the same patterns occur but at at different scales like the nerve ending, a tree, and a a river delta It's the same pattern but at different scales So the, uh, the nerve ending, a tree, and a river delta all have the same silhouette at different scales Dependent origination takes shape according to the same template at many different levels of our lives for the purpose of this current exploration, this particular book, uh, in the spirit of Ajahn Buddhadasa and also Ajahn Chah who valued Ajahn Buddhadasa's wisdom very highly, attention will be focused on the momentary experience aspects of the pattern, as this is what can be said to lead most directly to liberation, to the ending of dukkha, and that is what the Buddha repeatedly reminded us was the entire purpose of his teaching and so when the uh, when people ask Ajahn <coughs> Buddhadasa or, or Ajahn Chao, you know, why don't you, you talk about past lives or future lives? And and uh, and the or Buddhadasa, they would say usually uh, things like, well, but it's this present life is where you can make a difference. Past life has gone by already; that's out of reach. The future hasn't arrived yet; that's out of reach. What's within reach, what is close to us, is this life, this moment. Uh, and so this is. This is where we can make a difference. You can't go back to your past life and change things. You can't go off into the future and and change things. But in this life, here and now, this is where we can we can make a difference. And so that, um, uh, that focusing the attention on what can be done in the present moment uh, and in this present lifetime is is uh, very important. Uh, in, in Thailand and probably in other Buddhist countries. Um, there's a, uh, a strong um, habit or, or cultural uh, tradition of thinking that you've inherited. We, we've inherited things from our past karma, and we're stuck with them. So that uh, uh, they, that uh, you, you might have some kind of an uh, illness or an affliction or a problem with your neighbour or a difficult sibling, uh, something of that nature, and then uh, or you, you keep uh, spending all your money and you can't can't save anything. And then people say, "Oh, it's my, it's my past karma, gam gao. It's the old karma, or, or it's my, my debt to people that I've caused harm to in the past. Chao gom nay wen, uh, if that's the correct pronunciation, chao gam nai wen. So people that you've um, you have a karmic debt to in the past. So a lot gets written off to, uh, oh, it's out of my hands. I'm powerless because it's my old karma, or oh, this is my old debt from the past. So." Uh, teachers like like Lumpo Cha, Lumpo Buddha Dasa would say people are, are not using the faculties that they have because they're they're assuming that they are they're powerless that it's out of uh, it, it's a um, something has happened in the past and therefore you're stuck with it. There's nothing you can do about it. But they would say, no. <laughs> but you can do something about it now. You can develop wisdom to work with these this illness or this conflict in the family. You can you can use your wisdom now just because. That there might be some influence in the past, whether it's real or not. Now is what you can do something with it. You're not a victim, and so they're really encouraging that sense of self-reliance and using the power, the capacity that you have as a human being, rather than um, uh, putting oneself into a, a state of being a victim. Like, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's my it's my karma. No, <laughs> it's like uh, when sometimes when monks wanted to do to disrobe, they go to Cha and they say, oh. Meaning my merit has run out It's another way that people speak about it, my, my merit has run out Lumpur, so I, I need to disrobe you just say, make some more <laughs> <laughs> go, go meditate, make some more making merit is very easy just just uh, kind of cultivate your, your meditation practice, and that is very meritorious my merit boon run out my merit has run out Totally unsympathetic, but you can understand I mean kind of joking and not joking, you can understand where they're coming from, like, please one for let me go. You know, <laughs> desperate to have a, a good reason. But that's how it would be phrased, is my, my merit has run out. Uh, I had this store of merit from the past and it's now exhausted, my tank is empty. And he'd just say <laughs> fill up, you know, filling up is easy, just go to the meditation hall. Sit down and watch your mind. <laughs>
1: I got a question about um, this idea of it being tree be for the of multiple generations, and so I I'm, I'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around this idea of multiple lifetimes. But inherent in that is this idea of self, right? <laughs> Not necessarily. Okay. Um, so if you think that you've got the past the camera that may be affecting your current lifetime there's this continuous continuity between this, this object or thing to the next lifetime and if there really is no self and there's a collective consciousness then why would that be the responsibility of one individual, one person? Why would that not be a collective thing that's happening on a society level? I mean, I've probably got multiple terms wrong in that question, but I'm confused with this idea of this nucleus or this entity from one lifetime passing on to another lifetime if there really is no self. And why would it be something that you inherit if really there is no self to be inheriting it? Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're by no means the first person to ask. I mean, in fact, the, um, that same area is covered in the uh, in the next bit of the reading. the um, Because it's exactly that kind of fixed idea, there's this, this bubble of meanness that's going from one life to another. Um, that was a common question in the Buddha's own lifetime. And he said, well, you know, if all dhammas are not self, then who is it that's reborn? But, uh, uh, and one of the, the, the skillful ways that the Buddha responded to that, was he'd say, so, uh, are you the same person that you were when you were a, a newborn baby, and say, "No, I'm not the same person." They're, are you completely different? They're, no, I'm not completely different. Exactly. So there's a, there's a relatedness, there's a connection. It's, there's there's uh, uh, and so that causal relationship is um, what conditions. So look like if, a, if a, when a, if a baby uh, cuts themselves and, and gets a scar on their hand then when the, the adult might well have a scar on their hand in the same place as, because that was then as a baby but an adult is very very different from the baby but there's a, a causal relationship, there's a connection so that uh, the Buddha spent a lot of time explaining how it was that, that we seem to be independent individuals and that and we seem to be um, uh, say, passing from one life to another but it's more like, what is reborn is habits. And as you say, there are societal influences, family influences that come into that. And so that, um, when people say, if, if all dhammas are not self, you know, what is it that's reborn? The, the answer I usually give is habits. It's like uh, in, in the, the physics of waves, like if you're standing on a beach and you see a wave forming out in the sea and it, and it kind of comes into the shore, and breaks on the beach. It looks like there's this one ridge of water that's moving towards you, and then it breaks on the sand. That's not what's happening. The action, the water that that is forms the body of the wave, it's actually the the, the molecules of water are moving in in a, a kind of a small local elliptical shape, and the the wave of energy is moving through the water, and, and the the wave of energy is what breaks on the beach. It looks as though there's the same ridge of water that's coming in from out in, the, out in the sea and landing on the beach it looks like that form is going from there and arriving on the beach and breaking but it's, it's not the actual water the water is just forming the fabric of the, the wave and that what's moving is that energy so it might not be a very good example but that's how I have uh, uh, most helpfully understood it for myself so that this body, like we all ate today, right? so all these bodies here parts of them were in the larder in the pantry, in the fridges yesterday, right? that's not, that's not fantasy that's the fact, for those of us who ate today right? so, and what's in the pantry and in the larder and the fridges now will become bits of us tomorrow so that's like picking up the molecules of water but the minus, the Ajahn is like the shape of that wave that carries on because there's a collection of habits and conventions to say, "I amarok," unless I have an aneurysm keel over before the evening meditation, <laughs> then that wave will break. Um, but it's that—that's what carries on—is the force of habit and attachment, and enlightenment is where that uh, the that uh, the habits have ended, and so that the the body, when a being is enlightened, the body carries on, and the senses and the mental activity and so on, they, those carry on, but when the body breaks up, then nothing more can be said. It's not like the mind goes somewhere, and that's why the Buddha never spoke about, when people ask, well, what happens to an enlightened being, an enlightened being when they pass away? He would never answer that question. He would say that <clears throat> one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured that which can be spoken of is no more. Which is deeply unsatisfying. But it's interesting that nobody, nobody who is a stream-enterer or uh, uh, or, uh, or a prof- more profound level of, of insight ever asks the Buddha that question. Only only Potuginists, only people who are worldlings, ever ask that question. So that
1: links to the, something Einstein said about we totally can't understand things within our current framework, sorry, that's there a the point
0: where that framework much doesn't matter anymore. We understand. Indeed, yeah. We because we, we're very used to speaking of scale, measuring everything against the human scale. So, is the universe big? Well, what are you measuring it against? You know, is the Milky Way big? Well, compared to to this book, yes. But compared to the known universe, it's it's a pinprick. <laughs> so. And what's small, you know, the, is this book, it, it, compared to a, an electron, this book is really, really big. <laughs> so that uh, that being able to reflect on how things operate, uh, we, we, the world is experienced from the human scale, and that's uh, a result of this birth. There was a, a, um, I was reading a, a, a book about um, the end of the universe, <laughs> Uh, that uh, um, and was talking about these uh, kind of trillions and trillions and trillions of, of years into the future the kind of heat death of the universe in cosmologists view and and then someone uh, the, a part of the discussion was asking a physicist well could uh, but you know that's impossible to really speak about because um, you know what could of what sort of living being could be exist, could exist in that kind of an environment where you know, Protons and electrons are all breaking down and everything is disappearing completely. And And this physicist said, well, there could be beings that, if, uh, that exist in that kind of era of the universe that a single thought form takes trillions of years to take shape. And so for them, if, if a single thought takes trillions of our years, it, they wouldn't be experiencing time passing so slowly. It would be just like us with a with a day, or like an insect that just lasts a day, you know, that's a whole lifetime. One single day. So uh, not to get too complicated, but I feel it's part of that uh, appreciation of how the process of, of rebirth works is seeing how we're conditioned to the human scale of things, the human level, and what we take to be real or meaningful is heavily influenced by having a human body, and having a, a, th- a mind that uses a certain language and, and thinks in certain ways. And that those are not absolute realities. And that what, uh, what carries on, <laughs> what passes through time, is those uh, habits of attachment, identification and familiarity. Not just things that you love and hate, but things that are familiar, just certain sounds or smells. Yeah, that uh, oh I know that <laughs> and that the the mind gravitates to and takes to uh, takes hold of and develops a kind of relationship to anyway uh, let's read the last part of the chapter so this is also I feel quite uh, helpful to have in mind about language and convention lastly by way of laying the ground for this book it might be helpful to look briefly at the use of language in, the, in this area. For example, in the apparent dichotomy between the teachings on rebirth and those on anatta, not self. So. That wasn't rigged, by the way. So. It's not a plant. Right. So when should I ask that question, don't. That's completely uh, unrigged. In the Buddha's time, people would ask him, as they still do today, things like you say that all things are not self, but you also, you also talk about this or that person passing away and being reborn in this realm or that realm. For example, at Diganikaya Sutta number eighteen or Majima sixty eight. If all things are not self, who or what are these people that you're talking about? Quote unquote. You can almost hear the Buddha sigh. <laughs> I feel very predictable right now. <laughs> huh? I feel very predictable. <laughs> you can almost hear the Buddha sigh. The Buddha would respond in the vein of it's, it is a fact that I frequently say that all Dhammas are not self but I refer to this person quote unquote, or that person because it's the common usage of speech those words are employed without any delusion or without any creation of the belief in a permanent individual self for example, and this is from the uh, first section of the Sanyutanikaya, of connect, uh, the Connected Discourses, Sutta number 25. If a bhikkhu is an arahant, that monk might still use words like I speak, and he might say, they speak to me. Skillful, knowing the word, world's parlance, uh, world, the way the world expresses itself, he uses such terms as mere expressions in common use. So he might use words like "I speak" or "they speak to me," using personal pronouns. But uh, <clears throat> skillful, knowing the world's parlance, he uses such terms as mere expressions in common use. And then from the Nikaya, Sutta number nine, long discourses, and the Buddha is talking to Chitta, the householder. For Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech. Designations in common use in the world which the Tatargata uses without misapprehension, uses to conform to common custom without clinging to them. So he's very conscious of, I just say, using the terminology but without a delusion. But when he said this person was um, who they were in a past life, knowing, well, when we say they or past, as a recognition that those are conventional terms and used with that in mind. So I go on to say, well I might say today is Saturday, or Thursday. But it's not really, on an ultimate level, Saturday. That designation is just a human convention based on the English language and the seven-day week, referring to a particular experience in a particular geographical location. When we think of something as being right, quote-unquote, or wrong, quote-unquote, the rightness or wrongness is often highly relative. Similarly, the Buddha warned against being attached to specific verbal usages. For example, using a single household item as an instance of this, he said, and this is from uh, uh, Middle Length Discourses, Sutra number 139, so that's the one before the Discourse on the Elements. Don't cling to vernacular usage, like common, uh, common, or, common slang or dialect don't cling to vernacular usage or override convention. And how does one cling to vernacular usage or override convention? By dogmatically maintaining, for example, that a certain object, uh, so a, a single uh, household object, uh, that a certain object which is called a dish, party, in one part of the country, or a bowl, patta, in another, or a vessel, vita in another, or again a saucer, serava, or a pan, dharopa, or a pot, porna, or a cup, hana, or a basin, pisila, in yet another, must invariably invariably be called by a single name, either a dish, or a bowl, or a vessel, or a saucer, or a pan, or a pot, or a cup, or a basin. Then insisting in each and every locality this word alone is the proper usage of all the rest are mistaken. That will be an extreme case of local prejudice. But if one varies the terminology as one travels through different regions, continually bearing in mind how these various terms are applied to the same household object, then all divisive bias will be avoided. So I feel that's a really, really helpful teaching. Um, uh, And so we can very easily cling to opinions of what this thing really is. In this country, whether it's a scone or a scone, there's a bit of disagreement about these kind of things. Uh, Also whether the milk should go into the tea before or after the tea. These these are serious things. Or whether the jam or the cream should go first onto the aforementioned scone or scone. Depending on whether you're in Devon or in Cornwall. On which way you take the snuff, whether it's the Oxford way or the Cambridge way so that the um, they're easily we can make uh, firm and vicious divisions with other people just through clinging to particular terminology. Uh, this flexibility around language is of great importance when looking into a complex process like dependent origination especially as it is defined at its source in foreign terms i.e. Pali language. As one looks into the anatomy and mechanics of dependent origination It is the case that, after working with it for some time, most people find their own ways of articulating and getting a feel for each of the links, as I was saying earlier to our friend here, uh, and the connections between them. This approach, and even the crafting of one's own language to name each of the links, I feel is to be encouraged. So, making up your own way of describing things, of putting things together, and Your own translation, so when it says vinyana, I think of it as this, or feel a better word for, for nama rupa is, is such and such. So, developing your own way of understanding and languaging and holding it, then that's, I feel that's, that's very, very uh, useful. Because the, the point is to get a sense of how the, the process works and to be internalizing that and getting to see how that operates within one's own life. And then also as a good example of how um, the, what the Buddha is speaking about with his like this different words for the same household dish, little pot or a cup or uh, yeah, yeah, a pan, a saucer. Uh, one of the things that uh, w- w- many years ago, in, uh, again in, in the 80s when Venerable Ananda Maitreya, who's a very eminent Sri Lankan monk, uh, came and he spent his 70th Vasa here, his 70th rains retreat here at Amravati and had his 90th birthday here. So he had, his attendant was senior, Sir Ajahn (laughs) Sumedho. And uh, Venerable Ananda Matre, he had more reigns uh, than everybody in the male sangha put together. (laughs) So if you were all the rest of us together, we didn't didn't add up to 70. So he was very senior. But he was a brilliant scholar. He could speak about 13 or 14 different languages. Pali and Hindi and... um, and Sanskrit and French and German and, uh, and uh, you know, several other Indian languages, I think um, Tamil and uh, so on. Anyway, one of the things he pointed out was that because um, uh, he was very, very familiar with Pali and with Indian languages, and he said that often in the suttas you get the Buddha using strings of nouns or adjectives, like in the, um, the Dhammachaka Sutta Chakum Udapadi, Nyanam Udapadi, Panya udapari, Vija udapari, Aloko Udapadi. And so, and, and, the, and like you know, a dish, a pan, a pot, a saucer, a bowl, a cup, um, they all got similar meanings, like chakum adipari, uh, vision, chaku is the eye, chakum, vision arose, jnana, knowledge arose, panya, wisdom arose, aloka, light arose. So they have a similar meaning, but he had this theory uh, that I feel is probably very, very accurate, was that the Buddha was often talking to people from all kinds of different regions and different backgrounds, and so he would often use these strings of nouns or adjectives uh, because he's got someone from Vangsa, someone from Uttarakuru, someone from Magadha, someone from Kosala, someone from from, uh, from you know from uh, uh, Kampocha, you know, the, from all over. So he would be using terms that people would be would relate to, and because of his knowledge of language and also his his skill at uh, attuning to the audience that's there then he would be using terms that everyone could relate to also that he have farmers and uh, and carpenters as well as as uh, you know, the uh, local dignitaries so sort of the the uh, maharaja maharani the, the the queen and king of the, you know, might be there as well so he'd use language that would be familiar to to the uh, the, the village people to the the, the, you know, the high ups, the royals, the military people, and so that um, as I say appreciation of uh, of the different terms that he used. So then, people from all sorts of different regions and different backgrounds could understand what he's talking about. So chakunwadapari, nyangwadapari, Vichang Udapadi. So maybe his five companions there in the deer park in Varanasi, they might have <laughs> similarly have had different backgrounds. I don't know, but. Um, that, uh, but it was a style that the Buddha used throughout his his teaching. And also, it's kind of interesting that Shakespeare, um, the, the um, uh, famous English playwright from uh, from the same era as John Donne, I was quoting yesterday, uh, end of the fifteenth, early uh, sorry, end of the sixteenth, early seventeenth century. His, Shakespeare did similar things when he was in many of his plays. He would use words that were accessible to the common people were accessible to to uh, more uh, knowledgeable or educated people and deliberately put them sort of side by side or have a string of words that that conveyed a particular meaning so all of the people in in the coming to watch the play whether it was queen elizabeth the First or the the people from the fish market you know, everyone could follow what the what the story was about so any questions thoughts Yes. only for humans, or apply to all living beings? Well, um, I think only humans and devas would be likely to understand and make use of it. The um, the reason why we chant the matika and uh, the abhidhamma um, when someone dies, uh, as I understand it, is based upon. Um, uh, and, the, and the mythology is that that was teachings that the Buddha gave to the deva who had been his mother, Queen Mahamaya, and she's up in the deva realm. Because devas don't have enough suffering to be, able to, un, to be able to understand the four noble truths. So that uh, the Abhidhamma, that analytical teaching, and uh, including Pratichya um, then that, uh, is, that's uh, particularly useful for devas, because it's uh, spelling out the, the structure of the experiential uh, universe. Uh, if you haven't got the edge of dukkha to give you the impetus to wake up. So, uh, Brahma gods, I think, uh, are, apart from Brahma Sahampati, <laughs> Brahma gods, uh, you know, a human life is just a finger snap. So that uh, they, uh, and they don't have a lot of suffering, so they uh, they uh, again according to the mythology that you don't hear of Brahma gods uh, learning much or, or practicing Dharma very much. Um, Devas, you do like um, uh, Saka Indra was a disciple of the Buddha as the the, the head of the, the the monarch of the Tavatimsa heaven. And then the Buddha going up to the, the, the heavens to teach the deva who had been his mother. And he taught teaching her Abhidhamma. Because um, that was a way she could understand the teaching and and benefit from it. But, uh, yeah, animals, I would say, I know people, are, particularly in this country, say, my cat is a very spiritual being. <laughs> it's actually the most spiritual member of the family, Ajahn. <laughs> I tread very carefully in the West, and America too, that, If you talk about animal world as being a coarse or uh, unfortunate realm, then people get quite upset, (laughs) often. Um, But I would say that it's very difficult for a a cat or a dog or a horse uh, to get a perspective on the difference between feeling and craving. uh, Because that the animal realm, the capacity to reflect is seemingly diminished but, but it's interesting that the buddha said there's certain kinds of animals it's a fortunate uh the animals that live close to humans like horses elephants dogs and such like that they they are it's a it's more fortunate because of their association with the human realm and that they have more of an opportunity to develop that reflective capacity that that's you know there's various references to uh to to that um you know in various areas of the teachings but um, generally the the tirachana loka the animal realm is is one of the unfortunate realms so humans and devas that's why the um uh, when the in the chanting the teacher of gods and humans uh, satadeva manusanang teachers of humans and devas so humans and devas are the ones that can really understand the teaching and make use of them and dependent origination would, would be part of that Okay, I think that's enough for today. Speaking of of Brahma gods and scale, I'm just remembering that in the Pilgrim Kamanita. Those of you who might be familiar with that story. That when the, the hero and the heroine have ended up in the Brahma world, there's literally the, the author has it that um, they're having a conversation and breathlessly, five million years went by, and then breathlessly, uh, think. Uh, so, did you actually meet the Buddha? And then another five million years go by, and say, Yes, of course I did. And that, you know, it's like five million human years going going past in a. In a, a breathless conversation between two Brahmas. So, I think, you Carl know, Gellerup had a good sense for that. Um, the differences of scale that we, we can live with.